Yo, technology, what is it all about? The trip back to Paris was pretty hard. And since we're first time founders, for us, it was kind of the end of the world and everything. So. Yeah. And when we landed, we received our first term sheets. Oh, so it's just a really terrible flight, basically. It was a it was a terrible flight. I remember telling Patrick, "We are done. This is never gonna go anywhere." And then we land, and boom, good news. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Happy almost Thanksgiving week to you and yours. America's off for much of next week, eating ourselves into a stupor. But here at DITV HQ, the show obviously doesn't stop. All I'll say about next week is we will be potting and it will be food related. That's all I'm going to say. It's going to be good. Tasty. Even. But this week we're talking... Plants, specifically houseplants, or a very special houseplant. A houseplant that is genetically engineered to scrub the air inside your home of all the nasties that are leaching out of your paint, the glue in your furniture, all this stuff that over time is very bad for us. Now you might say, well, that's what plants do, they clean the air, but not like this one. On the program this week, we have the two founders of Neoplants, Leo Mora and Patrick Torby. Neoplants is a French startup that last summer raised $20 million from our friends at True Ventures and a bunch of other firms. And just this past month, they opened the waitlist for what they reckon is the world first, which is a plant that, as I said, genetically engineered to eat, basically, to ingest volatile carcinogenic compounds floating in the air in your home that over time can be very bad for you and turn them into fuel. Think of an air purifier, but with leaves and you don't have to plug it in. Obviously, it's a very interesting concept, a very fun founding story. And yet again, it's, it's this is just another example of companies that are using synthetic biology. We've talked about this concept a lot on this podcast. And it's the concept of really engineering cells to pump out products or to perform certain functions that they otherwise wouldn't. And listeners will know that this is very much an emergent theme out here in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of excitement and there have been kind of a 1.0 and even a 2.0 of these type of synthetic biology startups. But it feels like, well, a lot of those first generation didn't work. And now we're getting to a point where some really interesting things are starting to happen as people figure out how to use these new tools, how to better understanding genomes, genomics, and you know, gene editing, so to speak. So it's an area I find fascinating, and I think we will come to see um, the programming of biology to replace products we have come to know and love or loathe, be it oil or meat or air purifiers in this case. So that is what you're about to hear. It's a fascinating conversation with Patrick Torby and Leo Mora, the co-founders, calling in all the way from Paris late at night to talk about the world's first engineered houseplant. Enjoy. First of all, thank you guys both for staying up late because it's like 11.30 here, which means it's, what, 8.30 p.m.? Yeah. So it's Tuesday night, so hopefully I'm not keeping you from some raging party or something. <laughs> no, all good. 
So before we start talking, introduce yourself because there's, you know, when there's two people, we just want to make sure we know who's who. Of course. So I'm Patrick. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Neoplants. My background's in genetics, so I take care of the science and technology part of the company. I'm Leo. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Neoplants, and uh, I take care of the rest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you invent a plant? Why do we need a new expensive plant? So inventing a plant, I think, is a bit outside of, the, I'd say, the reach of science right now. We're, we're not reinventing nature. We're not there yet. But what we are doing is empowering already existing plants with other biological parts that we find in nature to allow it to have a positive impact. So the first plant that we're working on is uh, an indoor plant able to absorb and metabolize indoor air pollutants much more effectively than a natural, normal plant would to combat indoor air pollution, which is a big problem, certainly nowadays. And I think when it comes to why we do this, I think another level of answer is also because we believe that, you know, we've had enough machines and chemistry over the past century, and we're just starting to get the tools that allow us to work with nature instead of just consuming it. And we think this is very important. So this first product is really opening a door to a new era of plants. And, you know, as a, as a company, we, we started Neoplants because we believe nature is the most powerful technology out there. And we want to put it at the heart of innovation. So that's why we're building new types of plants. I want to get to the specifics, but... Could you just talk a little bit more about that vision that you're talking about of kind of this opening a door to a new era? Like, what do you mean? What does that look like? And, and what are the tools that are allowing us to do that in a way that maybe even five years ago, we, we wouldn't have been able to have done? Maybe I can start with the tools. So I think this is in common with a lot of uh, what we call now synthetic biology startups nowadays. These technologies uh, that started with the uh, high-throughput uh, genome sequencing to start with, then uh, genome editing with the advent of CRISPR in 2013, and before that, transgenesis. These tools are enable us to control and uh, engineer the most complex molecule out there, which is uh, DNA. The way I like to think about it is since the dawn of time, to the advancement of civilization has been a story of how do we control our environment. So how do we domesticate animals first? How do we create bronze? How do we melt iron? And that defined ages, actually, in civilization, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. And this was uh, manipulating elements on the periodic table, just chemistry, very simple molecules. Now we just start, we're at the very tip of the iceberg of uh, being able to engineer the most complex molecule that we know in the cosmos, which is DNA. And this single molecule codes for an entire organism. And changing this molecule enables to change characteristics in organisms. And so being able to just start to understand the way an organism works, the way DNA works, enables us to start to have a bit of, I would say, control over it to maximize its, uh, its potential. And what we want to do at Neoplant is to maximize its positive impact by trying to find what's within the reach of science right now or just barely outside the reach of science that needs a last step, which we can actually create a sustainable solution to a real problem. In that framing, when you talk about 
I think it's a potentially useful way to think about uh, this when we're talking about synthetic biology and being able to engineer organisms to produce and do different things. Do you think it's kind of, if you think about it in those terms, you have the Bronze Age, you have the Iron Age that we're now entering, the, I don't know, the biology age? I think we're entering many ages at the same time, in all honesty. I think uh, the information age, for sure, we're completely in it. It's difficult to predict the future, but I would be shocked if biology will not play a central role in our future. I think it's, it might be one of the, those things that are not, not intuitive to start with, but then looking back, if we fast forward 20 years, we've been, yeah, obviously this will be part of our technological future. It's uh, extremely complex, can be extremely powerful, very sustainable. So I think it's obviously going to be, the synthetic biology age will be part of the 21st century story for sure. And what's interesting is also like when you're talking about CRISPR, like, and it's like the way with all these things, it's like sequencing the human genome. And it was like, the world's going to be forever changed. And it's, you know, 30 plus years later, we're starting to see some of that play through, but it's, it's taken so much longer and so much more complex than we expected. And the same thing with CRISPR, as you mentioned, that's almost a decade ago. And CRISPR, if you correct me if I'm wrong, was effectively like kind of very precise scissors that let you to cut up certain parts of DNA to do, you know, to do different things. Um, but again, that's almost a decade ago and we, we haven't yet, you know, it doesn't feel like the world has changed. It just feels like, man, that was an amazing invention, but we haven't quite seen like, you know, the, the quote unquote, the killer app from it, but maybe we have, and I'm just not aware of it yet. I think we're getting there and it's, uh, well, there's two things. First, contrary to traditional technologies, it's, uh, it's a technology that was not developed by humans. Yeah. So it takes a lot of time to understand, to be able to get our hands on it. The more we understand it, the more we get that we don't understand anything. The more complex its nature reveals itself to be. So this first step of the answer, it's, it's another type of technology. It's almost an alien technology, and we're just starting to understand how to read and, and just uh, adopt it. The second part is there's very little infrastructure for synthetic biology technologies right now. I know this is an overuse comparison, but it's very much like uh, the computer science of the 70s, maybe even 60s, where it took a lot of time to find the killer app. It took maybe something like 40 years uh, before computer science entered people's lives in a real way. And I think it's going to take the same, maybe the same amount of time for synthetic biology. So I would say it's maybe 20 years old. I think in 20 years, looking back, we're going to live in a future that for sure incorporates a lot of synthetic biology. It's not only plants. Uh, I know you talk to uh, people that are doing cell-based foods or uh, biomaterials, for example. These are the same types of company that are part of the same wave, I think, that we're a part of. And it, it takes some time because it's very complex and uh, it's very new. It's not built upon previously acquired technology so much. Right. So let's talk about, you know, the idea of the killer app. And I'm not saying that the your guys' first product is going to be a killer app. But so what is the product? What is this house plant? It's, I believe it's $180, which is not a cheap plant. But what does it do? And I, you know, I was, I was talking to my editor earlier this morning and I said, oh, I'm talking to these, the startup today. And they've kind of engineered this plant that cleans up the air. And he was like, isn't that what plants do already? 
<laughs> so if you could just explain kind of also just the, the kind of the problem that you guys are trying to solve and, and how it works. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's interesting that the product that we've built has been in people's mind for so long. And I think this is why we see such incredible reaction over the past 15 days since we've made this announcement. Everyone wants to believe that plan clean the air. And the reality is that some plants have interesting properties in, in capturing some pollutants sometimes. So there's, there's a lot of ifs in this uh, nice story that a lot of people have been telling for the past, uh, well, maybe 20 or 40, 40 years. And we built that product. So what we've done is we have built a plant that is engineered, a plant and its microbiome, by the way, that have been engineered not only to capture, but to eliminate the four main pollutants you can find in people's homes. So we're targeting uh, specifically VOCs, volatile organic compounds, which are pollutants that are constantly emitted from a lot of things you'll have indoors, paints on the walls, pieces of furniture, household products. So the plant is, again, not only able to capture way more efficiently these pollutants, but to metabolize them, to use them as carbon source. So the technology is, is really about capturing but also recycling those pollutants that normally plants have no idea what to do with. Right. And the idea is basically, it's almost like a water purifier, but for the air in your home. Right. Targeting these pollutants. And, you know, you mentioned the, the price point as being a, a more expensive plant, but as I think we discussed uh, last time, I think, you know, it could also be seen as a, as a pretty cheap air purifier. Right. So what are volatile organic compounds, VOCs? Because if you tell somebody, oh, like the, the air in your home may be more dangerous than, for example, going out into like, I don't know, a busy city street. And I don't know if that is true. But I think 10 people out of 10 would not understand that on a basic level. It's not something people would know about or think about. And so just if you could just explain what these compounds are, where they come from, and why they're problematic. Like, is there a kind of clinical or scientific data that shows actually the, the air you're breathing in your house is full of nasties that can cause all kinds of problems? Yeah, people have this intuition that uh, the air in the street would be polluted. But if you live in an urban environment, the air in the street might be actually the pure air that you could breathe because this is the baseline. This is the air that comes from outside in your in your house. On top of that, you add all the compounds that are emitted by everything that we have indoor, as Leo said. Uh, and that makes indoor air pollution up to five times more polluted than outdoors. And this leads to serious issues. Air pollution in general has been linked to uh, millions of uh, premature death every year. It's an extremely real problem in, in most countries, most urbanized country, developing and uh, developed countries. And uh, the most, uh, I would say, dangerous part of it, it's not something that happens to you in one event. It's chronic exposure over time that actually deals the health effect that we see. So this is why I think indoor air pollutant has been on the top five priorities of the environmental protection agency in the US for many, many years in a row. That's like lead paint, for example. Lead paint has been, uh, fortunately, it was the major air pollutant for a long time. Fortunately, there's very harsh regulation on it since the last 30 years, I think. So that had major, major issues that even transformed generations, I think. It's a very 
striking example of what indoor air quality can do to you. Right now, fortunately, in most developed countries, lead in indoor environments is not an issue because all the products don't have lead in it anymore. But products do have, for example, plywood. When you buy furniture, it's made of usually plywood, and this has a lot of aldehydes in it, acts as a glue. With temperature and, uh, and sunlight, these aldehydes are emitted as formaldehyde. Formaldehyde causes a huge range of issues chronically. Aggravated asthma symptoms, coughing, a bit of nausea, and chronically can increase your uh, rate of cancer, lung cancer, throat cancer, etc. So IKEA can kill you. I'm saying that, <laughs> not you. Well, in fact, in fact, the, I think in the very first uh, days of Neoplans, we, we did a call with IKEA. And it was a cold contact, you know, we were coming out of nowhere. Mm. And they got the call instantly. Why? Because they know exactly what we're talking about. Every single product they sell is a formaldehyde bomb. Mm. Actually, they, they tried to develop uh, both the problem and the solution. So they, they invested quite a lot of money in a solution that was, I think, like, it was kind of curtains that were trying to use um, photocatalysis as a, as a technology to to eliminate VOCs. The problem with photocatalysis is, which is a pretty trendy uh, technology out there when it comes to air purifiers. The problem is it's been studied and most of the time the, the reactions are partial. And so you have byproducts coming out of this uh, technology, which sometimes are even worse than the, the pollutants you're trying to eliminate in the first place. Right, right. So how do you guys know each other? How did you start the company? Because again, it's like so many startups, it's not like an obvious thing like, oh, we're going to launch a company to engineer a plant to clean the <laughs> air of indoor pollutants. I guess it's not intuitive when you say it like that, but we got to the idea <laughs> quite intuitively. Yeah. <laughs> so we started with uh, this deep um, belief that we needed to put nature at the heart of innovation. This is something that was needed in the world. And did you guys already know each other from like school or something? Like, how did you guys come together and, and start the company? Oh, yeah. Leo, do you want to tell the story? Yeah, we, uh, we met in an incubator in Paris, where, which is called Entrepreneur First. Mm. And they, they basically uh, gather mostly scientists and engineers, specialized engineers, with people like me who don't have a technical background, but have a particular taste for complicated things. Right. And it's basically a talent incubator. And so we met there with Patrick. And the first time we, we had a conversation, we, you know, Patrick uh, mentioned this general idea, which, which I find pretty much mind blowing, this idea of building an organism with a function. And, right. you know, one could say, you know, any organism has functions, but the idea behind Patrick's thinking was, well, what if you can design the function? What, what if you can design the feature? Mm. And as a, as a product person, that idea never crossed my mind in, right. at the time, 27 years of life. And, I, I, you know, I was, I was like, okay, okay, this is, this is next level. And what had you done up to that point? Were you going to that, that incubator being like, I'm going to do a SaaS startup to make you know, business processing better or some, some, I mean, what were you thinking about at that time? So before that, I spent four years and a half at Google on my side. I was working there as a PMM and I got fortunate to work on many different product launches, but I was a bit frustrated with the, the sort of impact the products I was working on were having in the world. And I think in, in typical millennial fashion, I was like, okay, I'm ready to work a lot and I have a lot of energy, but I want to make sure that it's, you know, it's for 
some kind of purpose and I don't want to have any doubt about it. So, mm. so that was, that was my drive. I had a lot of ideas. I, I was sure I wanted to work on deep tech. I, I thought if you want to have deep impact, you need deep tech. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm still very much convinced by this. And that's why I went there and I got very fortunate to, to meet Patrick. And Patrick, what were you doing? Were you just spending years and years in the lab, like, toiling away on this <laughs> idea before, before you got there? Or how'd you, what was your story? I was locked up in a lab for four years before that. <laughs> so just I, actually, uh, I met Leo straight out of my uh, PhD, which was in genetic engineering. So got the chance to use CRISPR, transgenesis, a lot of really cool biotech tools right. for fundamental research. And I wanted to to show people the power that genetics could have to have a positive impact. And when I met Leo, it, it was like the perfect perfect matchmaking because. We had the same vision, but very complementary skill sets and backgrounds. I'm always interested by these like uh, founder stories, also like the kind of concept of like founder dating. I've talked to some people on this podcast who like cycled to like a dozen people like go in and it's just like, nope, nope, no. It's almost like Tinder. Like, did you guys have a, <laughs> was there any kind of like social thing? Or otherwise we had to be like, all right, yeah, we can work together. We're vibing or was it just immediately apparent? Well, I don't know. You want to go first, Patrick? Sure. <laughs> so, I think, as, as you said, uh, Danny, I think the, one of the main reasons why startups either don't form or fail is uh, this problem of uh, co-founder dating, as you, totally. as you put it. And Entrepreneur First is kind of an entrepreneurial dating platform where uh, they put 50 people in the room and they actually do a bit of speed dating and they encourage us to break up as fast as possible. So they have a, <laughs> a culture where you celebrate breakups, like you publicly announce your breakups and people celebrate you for it. And I think it's, uh, That's it's a good way to think about it. It's like yeah. kind of uh, agile thinking, but for matchmaking for startups. That being said, entering the program, I thought I was going to be with somebody that's very technical and science savvy, but very quickly understood that yeah, no actually we need complementary skill sets and yeah when i met leo for me it was uh, kind of love at first sight <laughs> <laughs> i think patrick and i we were very much aligned on why we left our respective careers and what was our drive and i think we we both wanted to have an impact we wanted to work on something that was difficult that was bold and to be honest, when Patrick told me the course he was giving in his uh, former university, the title mm. of the course, I was like, wow, this guy comes from the future. And I think right. Patrick should definitely talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I got the chance to teach a course. I got to choose the, the theme and everything. It was uh, genome editing, how to create your dragon. What? So it was very popular with the master students in the university. And it was kind of a Trojan horse where... I use creating dragons as a lure to get uh, students excited about, oh, is that even possible? How could we ever create dragons in real life? And it shows, it's a Trojan horse to teach them about synthetic biology, genome editing techniques, etc. Right, right, uh, right. No one's created a dragon yet, I take it. <laughs> Not yet. There are people trying to recreate mammoths. Uh, That's true. They've, I've had uh, George Church. I had him on the podcast earlier this year. So you guys got together. What year was that? It was in 2018. Were there many pivots before you got to the plant idea? Or was it immediately like, oh, we can engineer a plant that is kind of basically an air purifier? I think we went pretty quickly towards this. Um, the big question was, 
do we go for say carbon capture and storage slash climate change straight away or right is there is there a roof shot before the moonshot and we made the decision early on to take this uh, sort of intermediate step first because we think it can solve a very large scale problem uh, we thought we could have an impact more quickly and most importantly we could develop the foundational technologies to build our scientific credibility and show both consumers and investors what we can do. And here we are four years later, uh, we just announced our first product, Neo P1, first and only plant bioengineered to purify the air in your home. How long before you raised money and what was that experience like? So Patrick and myself were both uh, first time founders. So it was really easy then. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a roller coaster. So we did the first round in summer 2019. So that was that was the first real fundraising experience. It was a real roller coaster because our company didn't fit any box. And I, I remember a bunch of people telling us, "Well, we don't really know where to put you, and so it's going to be difficult." And I was like, "It was very frustrating, to be honest." Do you remember how many no's you got before yes? Yeah, I can tell you. We during the seed round, we took 230 investors, but uh, at some point, the ro- it's a roller coaster. So it went yeah. up. We, we we had a d- demo day where we got like loads of traction, and then we started talking to a lot of people. We were, I think, you know, we tried to prepare a lot for this, and then we started getting the nose, and it was like, wow, okay, where is this gonna go? It's never gonna work. And then suddenly we started getting yeses, and we were actually the company that got the most term sheets in the history of Entrepreneur First, our incubator. Wow. So the, that first round ended up uh, really, really well. And uh, we got fortunate enough to, to be able to pick uh, the investors we wanted to work with. And uh, we've been together since then. And you have fantastic investors. Yeah, so who does invest in something like this? Because as you say, <laughs> it's, not, it's not software. It's yeah. not... Yeah, you know, clean meat. It's not, you know, it's not like any of the kind of the sexy bits of synthetic biology, or at least not obviously. So who said yes? So first, uh, our historical investor, uh, True Ventures, generalist out of Silicon Valley, uh, they invested in both like deep biotech unicorns to consumer unicorns. Fitbit. Yes, famously. Yeah, Fitbit, Blue Bottle Coffee, Peloton, like a bunch of them. So generalist, like I would say, Top tier generalists uh, can do right. this type of things because they see the opportunity, they see the the potential, and then since then we've we've also added a bunch of different investors. We have pure consumer tech investors, and we have also a fantastic list of business angels. Some of them being world class uh, synthetic biology founders. So I would say because of the nature of the company, we have whether generalists uh, who have solid track record or a specialist, whether on the consumer tech side or on the deep tech slash biotech side. So it's a, it's a happy family at the cap table. Right, right, right. So that was four years ago and you've just launched your first product. So how did you end up getting to this product in terms of like how difficult was it? And like, what is that process of actually engineering a plant to do what you've engineered it to do? Well, I can tell you it was more difficult than we originally thought, that's for sure. Yeah. The process is uh, relatively straightforward, at least in the conception 
part of it. The concept was how can we maximize the impact of an indoor plant to absorb the pollutants and metabolize them? And it's a matter actually of fluxes. Normal plants can absorb some pollutants, but they don't metabolize them. So there's kind of a flux bottleneck that ends up on the plant leaf. What we do is we look within nature, our strategy is to look within nature for genes, genetic elements that code for enzyme that can take this pollutant that is stuck in this cell and transform it into a compound that the plant naturally uses as a source of carbon, sugar or amino acids, for example. So conceptually, we look at which pathways within nature can use formaldehyde or benzene or toluene as a substrate to create something that the plant can use. And nature actually already developed all these technologies hundreds of millions of years ago and has been, I would say, optimizing them over like 100 million years or more. What we do is we take these pieces of kind of alien technology, optimize them, adapt them to the plants, insert them inside our plants, make the plant grow. That's the first part of the tech. The second part is actually those genetic elements that we find within nature, often we find in microorganisms, sometimes called extremophile, that can live in very polluted area that naturally evolve these, uh, these depollution capacities. And from these, what if we could take some of these organisms and put them in symbiosis with the plant, meaning have a microbiome of bacteria that are able themselves to maximize the depollution capacity of the plant soil product, if you want. So it's a kind of a two-prone approach, metabolism engineering of the plant and microbiome engineering of the, the entire ecosystem. So conceptually, it's quite simple. When you start to apply it, then the, the problem comes. Well, I was going to say, so how do you, what is the actual process of inserting these different kind of pathways that can, you know, if it's like I have my plant, actually I have a, plant, a couple of plants behind me. And I want to turn one of these plants behind me into something that can actually ingest benzene or formaldehyde and actually make it usable. Like, how do you do that practically? <laughs> yeah. So the first part is uh, a bit of in silico studies. So identifying which genes could do this uh, chemical reaction that you want to put and which chain of chemical reaction would work. Second part is designing the DNA, finding these genes within nature, optimizing them for the plants, and creating this, what we call a DNA construct. Mm. And then once you have this DNA construct, the hard part starts. How do we insert this inside the plant? Well, first, we need to create the equivalent of plant stem cells, if you wish. So we yeah. cut the plants, and then we put a bit of hormones to induce a proliferation of those undifferentiated cells, cells that could become an entire plant later on. Yeah. that we could regenerate a single one of those cells into a fully grown plant. This is, by the way, technology that we had to develop very much internally because the plants we're working on, very, very, very few people in the world work on. So we had to do whole genome sequencing of that mm. plant, which has never been done before, and a bunch of in silico modeling, etc. But once you have this DNA, and once you have this plant, this bundle of plant cell we call calluses, then we need to insert the DNA. And then there's... There's two ways to do it. Both of them, I think, are super elegant. The first one is coating very tiny little beads of gold, coating them with DNA, and literally mm. shooting them with what we call a gene gun inside the cell of the, of the plant. And it goes inside the nucleus. And inside the nucleus, this DNA, that's this gold bead coated by DNA, the DNA 
gets out of the bead and integrates the genome of the plant. A gene gun. I've never heard of a gene gun. That sounds cool. Yeah, we have another word for it. That's also a play on word. It's biolistic instead of ballistics. Biolistic. Oh, yes, yeah. of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's really cool as well. So this is the first way we do it. Another way is actually using nature itself. So there's a naturally occurring bacteria called agrobacterium that mm. can infect plants with its own DNA. And plant scientists have been able to short circuit or just code this organism so that it only inserts the DNA that you want it to insert inside the plant. It's very easy to insert DNA inside the bacteria. So if you insert it inside this particular strain of bacteria, it can in turn infect the plants with the DNA that you put inside it. So it's agrobacterium mediated transformation is what we call it, or biolistic mediated transformation. And from there, we have to select the cells that have integrated the right DNA, make the plant grow, test the plant and see if it works. So it feels, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like the challenge for you guys is, is twofold. One, most people don't know about VOCs, these volatile organic compounds that they're breathing in and potentially have deleterious effects on their health. Most people just, as I said, I feel like most people think of pollution as something that is outside, not inside their homes. So there's a, it feels like there's an education piece to be done. And then also having people take your word for it. You know, because it's not like if I want something that cleans the air, then I can turn something on and I can hear it whirring in the background and be like, oh, yeah, that must be cleaning the air. That air filter that I've purchased at whatever Argos or whatever it may be. So how do you guys think about both of those things? The first part is, you know, it's true that uh, indoor air quality or indoor air pollution would benefit for, from you know, higher awareness level. That being said, we've seen that it's been changing a lot over the past four years. Mm. Uh, we didn't have COVID in our business plan when we started. And COVID has made people realize that even when you're in your home, even when you're inside and feel safe, there are things that are just invisible that mm. can be incredibly harmful. And we've seen the level of awareness when it comes to um, indoor air pollution or being conscious about the quality of the air you breathe uh, increase over the years. But there is still some, some work to do there. Another thing I would say on this point specifically is when we talk to uh, consumers or, or future users, we realize that there's a big chunk of them that don't only buy the, the plant or don't only show interest in the plant for now, because of the intrinsic indoor air quality features, mm. but also because they believe in the mission, because they believe that we should exist and they want to be a part of that. They want to have an impact. They want to contribute to what we're building. And I think this is really powerful. It's been incredibly energizing for us and for the team. And this is why I think we're going to keep pushing this uh, pretty far. But I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is, is like, you know, uh, for example, that's like with a, the FDA, you know, for a, before a drug is approved, it has you have to go through trials and say, OK, this is efficacious and safe. Is there a similar process that you guys are going to try to do where you have this third party who's like, actually, this is legit. This isn't, you know, something that they've spent four years and then you go down to Ikea and they're just like, you know, they've taken a bunch of $10 plants and said, these are $180 and these are going to save your life. You know, like a la some of these 
other companies that have done that, which will remain remain nameless, not in plants, but other products. Since the beginning, what we wanted to be is extremely transparent about everything that we do. First, because we we think the there's actually two areas that are very opaque. First is the area of GMO. Mm. Historically, has been extremely opaque and has been just a nightmare. I think because of some of the companies out there that did some very bad choices. So we want to be extremely transparent with how do we create our plants, the genetic modification that we do, but also the impact that it has. So in that sense, I, uh, since it's a new type of product, I think it was worth to write a white paper about what's inside the plant, how it works, and what's the impact. So I've written a, a white paper that's uh, just available for anyone on our, on our website. But a big, big part of what we're doing is partnering with uh, independent universities here in France to test the efficiency of the product third party to make right. sure that well, there's other people that are testing the plant that show what's the results of, uh, of the studies. This is currently ongoing and it's going to be a major, major focus in the next uh, few months. But all the data that we have on the phytoremediation efficiency of the plants, making how can we say that it's 30 times better than any plant tested, everything is, uh, is in that little white paper that I, that I wrote. And there's a reason why no air purifiers has ever uh, shown uh, field trials, or at least not that I know of, because it's extremely, extremely difficult. Indoor air is actually extremely complex. It's a very complex dynamic system. So we, are, we have been developing for the past three years very precise tools and measurement methods to be able to track indoor air quality very, very precisely. I guess that's kind of surprising because uh, I would think that you could kind of set up like, I don't know, even just like a model home, you know, with like normal conditions and then like put different air, fill, air purifiers in there and just see, you know, test the air before and after. And that, I mean, I'm sure I'm simplifying it dramatically, but that doesn't feel like a big mountain to climb scientifically. This was actually our, our thinking when we started this adventure and it turns out it's actually much bigger than what we thought. There's a lot of dynamics involved in a bedroom. There's uh, the effect of humidity on the volatile organic compounds uh, equilibrium with the, with the sources. Humidity, light has a huge effect. Temperature has a huge effect. Exchange rates with, uh, with the rest of the, the apartment, with outside. Those are all factors that need to be very well calibrated if we want to test this. We're building right now, we're finishing building in, I think in three weeks, it'll be ready, an entirely new lab. And specifically, the reason why, like one of the big reasons why we, did, we wanted to build this whole new lab is because we designed the entire system, ventilation system, et cetera, of this lab to be able to construct two bedrooms where we can control light, humidity, temperature, airflow, pollution concentration, inlet, outlet, et cetera. So this is the first why, because it's a very complex dynamic system. And second, the pollutants that we're targeting, VOCs, are notoriously difficult to detect. The analytical chemistry machines that you need to detect precisely these pollutants are something around each machine is something like 200K, and you need something two or three, depending on the amount of pollutants. So it's a much steeper hill to climb. And we thought other people climbed it before us. Yeah, we yeah. could rely on yeah, them. Because I've spent, I because I live in California, we have wildfires here, so I like we went out and bought three or four purifiers for different bedrooms during fire season. And they have all the little, you know, UL and this, that, and this and certified and blah, you know, they have all the kind of the little badges on them. Yeah. These badges usually, for example, like when people say it's EPA certified, yeah. um, the EPA only certifies that it doesn't have a negative impact on your health. 
That's oh. what it means, for example, <laughs> to be EPA certified. So they have a lot of games and a lot of right. opaque things that they that they say. So it's like. You know, yes, you buy your Dyson air purifier and the app will give you a graph. Okay. Totally. And, you know, if they can sell this and if it makes people happy, okay, <laughs> good for them. Uh, if Patrick goes back to our R&D team and says, hey, we're going to do this huge proxy with these shitty sensors, everyone's whether going to quit or tell Patrick, right? you know, it's not happening. Right. It's just, I think we have a, maybe it's a, I don't know. I think we have... We have a very uh, strong culture of excellence within the scientific team, mm. and we'll not release something out there that we um, That's garbage. that we we're not yeah we're not confident with. And if it takes more time, it will take more time. Right, right. Um, I have two more questions, and I'll let you guys go. One: Did you ever think about moving out here to California, especially given that your first investor was here, and you know, supposedly this is the center of the universe for startups, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Definitely considered it. I actually had a chat with Fia Black from True Ventures about this a few weeks ago. It might definitely happen at, at some point. You know, I, I love California, as you say. I think it's it's still uh, it's probably the epicenter for innovation still today, right. and it might happen one day, especially since the U.S. is our first market. So, oh, okay, that, that's that was also going to ask for that. This is. Because you've started the pre-orders now, but it's only U.S. at the moment. We we've we've only opened the waitlist, uh, which. Okay. Uh, again, the reaction has been crazy so far. So it's. Can you say how many people are on the waitlist? No, I, I can't. I can't share numbers yet. But I can tell you that we had we had pretty aggressive uh, targets and expectations, and they are. Uh, you know, we're way above our expectations at right. this point. Oh, sorry. I said I had two more questions. Now I have two more questions. The other one was around just how this works. Because the other thing is, that, you know, like my air purifier, which I may actually be complete nonsense now that you've just told me what you've told me. Um, you turn it on, you turn it off. It doesn't die if I don't water it, right? And it doesn't require fertilizer or sunlight or mm -hmm. whatever. So what is the kind of the care regimen for these? Like, how do you make sure they're healthy and doing what they're supposed to? And is this going to be like a, you know, plant as a service model? Just one note on what you just said, right? Uh, yeah. You turn it on and you turn it off. Yeah. That's the problem. It works between <laughs> the moment you turn it on yeah, yeah. and the moment you turn it off. And the problem is that it's trying to solve something that as soon as you turn it off, the pollutants go back up, right? Mm. So I don't believe in those machines. The plant doesn't stop working. There's no off button on the plant. Yeah. It works 24-7. So I'll, I'll let Patrick answer about that. As you can see, I have a I yes. have an opinion about those machines. <laughs> to put a little caveat, these machines are pretty effective against a certain type of pollutant called mm. particulate matter. Yep. But you don't need a $600 Dyson air purifier. You need an air filter and a fan yeah. at the end of the day. For that, HEPA filters are quite good against, actually very good against particulate matter. But all the technologies that these purifiers use against VOCs are very inadequate, very lackluster, I think mm. is the word a lot of byproduct, or you have to change the filters very, very often. So I think the problem and the beauty of the plant is that it's a living organism. Mm -hmm. Obviously, plants, you need to take care of it. Our plant, the more you take care of it, the more it takes care of you because it, yeah. it grows and thrives on, on the pollutants. The more it grows, the more powerful it is. Mm -hmm. And I think this is true sustainability. If you buy a, a machine, an air purifiers, five years down the road, it's probably either in a pile of garbage somewhere in the world or in the end of a closet, I yeah. guess. 
five years after you buy the plant, the plant will be maybe five times bigger, so five times more effective. Mm. The way we make sure that uh, people don't kill the plants or keep it in a good, healthy state is first the plant itself. We start with a plant that is extremely robust. This is why we wanted to start with that plant, part of the reason, Epipremnum aureum or pothos. It's extremely difficult to kill. It's, it's the reason why it's the most sold house plant in, in the world, at least in North America, for sure. Is it like the Steven Seagal of houseplants? You just can't kill him? I don't know about Steven Seagal. You guys can I use shouldn't. that. Oh, that's, that's totally dated. You guys are younger than me, but like from my generation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Steven. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to kill. But the main problem with houseplants is people either overwater them or underwater them. Yeah. So hydration is the problem. Um, so what we did is not really rocket science, as Leo likes to say. We just added a uh, water reservoir with a little rope that goes from the reservoir to the soil. So mm. by capillarity, it just keeps the soil right. to a good uh, moisture level. It's kind of like a, a wick, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's right. uh, just, just water just gets naturally pumped up from right. the reservoir to the soil. And so all you have to do is to remember to keep the, well, there's a little water indicator. So just fill the reservoir once every three weeks or so. Otherwise, the plant can grow in a lot of varied indoor environments. It's quite robust. Either very, very little sunlight or a lot of sunlight. We don't recommend direct sunlight, but even then, it can survive. Do you also sell like this little kind of package of microbes or microbiome, correct? Yeah. So the microbiome that we sell with the plant is actually part of the solution for indoor air remediation. So it's the, the little bacteria that I talked about that we found within nature and evolved for depollution capacity. So this is uh, a microbiome that you have to refill every three months to keep the performance of the plant at maximum level. Since it's a two-part system, the plant mm. and the microbiome, half of it is this microbiome that you will need for now to refill every, every three months. But it also has some studies, we haven't tested this ourselves. Some studies say that some of the microbiome that we use are good for the growth of the plant. But this, in all honesty, we haven't tested yet. We know it's not... Uh, negative like it right, doesn't have right, any right. deleterious effects and to answer your question about you know is this a, a sort of plant as a service at this moment we're not considering uh this this model we we know a lot of investors uh, like this but we also we're, we're very focused on consumers so we also know there is a bit of a fatigue of uh, subscriptions and stuff in the u.s so we'll, we'll keep things simple uh, to start with but i mean if every three months you have to get a new thing of microbiome that feels subscription-y yeah it's just it's just in the model itself you know you can have the choice of you know setting bundles and if you want to reorder oh, you can reorder it's just different than you know the first time you buy you have to subscribe we don't know what's the best thing but the way we'll we'll look at it is from a consumer perspective right 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 uh and then my last question was what was your worst day of work <laughs> oh wow <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that's that's a fun question <laughs> for me it was probably at some point during a fundraising i guess that would be right um so i'll tell the quick story okay, okay. yeah yeah uh, i won't name everyone i won't name anyone that's okay? fine that's fine so we get to silicon valley and there's there starts to be momentum around what we do we meet a bunch of people and we meet with this investor and we do one meeting, two meetings. We meet with all the partners. We meet again with all the partners. And there's like tons of emails, tons of sort of positive signs. 
the guy brings us to have like you know lunch with his wife and and stuff then we have another dinner and and i'm like okay this is this is it they want to be in they believe in everything and you know we have found the right investors they just get it and it's going to be awesome and yeah we're going to send you a term sheet we're going to send you a term sheet and this and that and the day we take the plane to go back to paris it's like, uh, well, sorry, guys. Uh, we just had this last conversation and we're not going to be able to make it. That's it. Stops there. And you're like, wow, okay. And, and I think that was a pretty bad day because I really, you know, it's like, it, this is the, the, the exact contrary of managing expectations. Totally. Like setting expectations <laughs> at the very highest you can possibly think of and then just blowing it up. Do you know what, what happened? Why they decide ultimately to not do it honestly i can't it's probably written somewhere in one of my uh, documents but i can't i can't even remember i think i was i was too shocked and my brain probably erased that uh, (laughs) my mind i felt i I remember i felt pretty down uh that day i don't know if you know this leo but i have a video of you uh on the phone with that investor in the airport because it was Ah. like last second before boarding our plane and (laughs) Oh, shit. The plane almost left without Leo because he was on the phone with this investor with the bad news. So yeah, the trip back to Paris was pretty hard. And since we're first-time founders, for us, it was kind of the end of the world and everything. So. Yeah. And when we landed, we received our first term sheet. Oh, so it was just a really <laughs> terrible flight, basically. It was, a, it was a terrible flight. I remember telling Patrick, we're done. This is never going to go anywhere. And then we land and boom, good news. Ah, amazing. Amazing. Is that the same story for you, Patrick? Actually, during fundraising, most of the stress is concentrated on Leo, even though we do, even though we do the fundraising always as uh, like as a couple, us two, uh, I think Leo, Leo's the CEO. So he's, I think he's more responsible than I am. So he stresses a bit. <laughs> I think my story, my worst day ever might be a bit less, well, maybe a bit more personal. Um, I think it was the first time we had to let go of an employee. Mm. Um, that was pretty harsh for me because I, I didn't come from a from an industry background. I was always in canti- an academia, and academia nobody gets nobody gets let go. Exactly. <laughs> so it's the first time I have experience in that stuff, and being on the other side was uh, was quite difficult emotionally. Yeah. So even though you know it's the right decision for the company. It wasn't easy at all. So I think that was the worst day, at least, uh, right. that right. I can think of. And so when is the, uh, just before I let you go, when's the, when is the plant going to be being sent out or go, actually go on sale and you know people start selling it to the yeah. wait, people on the wait list and whatnot? You'll be able to pre-order the plant in the first uh, quarter of 2023 and we'll, we'll ship the first batches the same year. Cool, cool. More on that very soon. Exactly. We'll, uh, we'll have you guys back on when it's, uh, when it's out there in the world. Thanks a lot, Danny. Thank you so much for having us. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Patrick and Leo for taking the time late in the evening in Paris um, to talk about what they've been up to. Thank you all for listening, as always, for the reviews, for the, the ratings, for telling your friends and neighbors about the podcast. It really helps other people find it, which is great for me. That is it for me this week. I will be writing about probably Twitter because that's all I ever write about these days. Twitter and crypto. I'll probably write about both of those. So if you want to do check that out at thetimes.co.uk and also you can find me on Twitter 
at Danny Fortson. Have a fabulous weekend. Thank you, as ever, for listening, and I'll talk to you very soon.